Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Episode 77, for the love of the game, let's rock. Society, baby. The police wanna relocate me. They run it with, but they can't fake me. They wanted to come up, but they ain't crazy. I ride one in the six tray Chevrolet rolling without no top. Got them hydraulics dumping and making it drop. California to Virginia, Timmy making it hot. Taking long rides in a G4 plane. X Men to the stage, got them going insane. Yeah, got the world saying my name. I'm about to make a little change. I'ma keep it the same. You dig? X to the Z, baby. Run up on your hidden corners, man. I'm great. Come on. X be the life of the party. Don't be scared, girl. Reach out and touch somebody. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Episode 77 for the love of the game. Quick turnaround between episodes. Got some stuff to talk about. The Michael Jordan documentary episodes three and four dropped this past Sunday night. We have uh, the NFL draft to talk about. It's nice to have some content to discuss. Feels like a little bit more normal, even though things still very much are not back to normal. One quick thing before we get into the MJ stuff and the draft. So I've been hearing a lot of optimism about the NBA returning. I've been hearing late June, early July Uh, The goal for them is a few regular season games. The NBA would ideally love for each team to get to 70 regular season games, maybe shorten the playoffs, best of five for the first round, something like that. Assuming nothing crazy happens with this godforsaken virus and things are leveling off the way they seem to be, the NBA will return this season. This will get done. I am super confident about this. And uh, I think the NHL will do something similar as well. They'll follow the NBA model. I believe this to be true. Baseball, I don't know about because the season hasn't started yet. And honestly, as a Yankee fan, I'm a little conflicted about uh, if I want the baseball seasons to start. On the one hand, I mean, I like watching Yankees baseball. On the other hand, the MLB season won't really resemble a normal season. And since the Yanks are a top two to three contender for the to winning the World Series, I want them to win a World Series in a normal year because a World Series title this year will probably be looked at a little bit weird, especially more than any other sport that their seasons had already started. And I don't want any injuries to the guys uh, for all the double headers that they're going to be playing this year if they get the games underway. I don't know. I'm not sure if I want baseball to come back this year. But yeah, uh, obviously, like it has been for the last two months, the situation is extremely fluid, but I'm more and more optimistic about sports in general, especially the NBA. On to part three and four of the last dance, a couple of things. One, Jerry Krause, who was by far the biggest loser from the first two episodes, actually came off really well in episodes three and four. His move to hire Phil Jackson and push Doug Collins out after uh, the 1989 playoffs, his affinity for Tex Winter. He even had a great dancing moment on the plane after the Bulls beat the Pistons in 1991. Uh, Big rebound for Jerry uh, this past Sunday. Two, Dennis Rodman. Dennis Dennis is a character, uh, to put it lightly. He started out as a shy, quiet guy who had a troubled childhood then became a super late bloomer, growing like seven inches super late in life, playing college basketball after working as a janitor for a few years. Then he had the run with the bad boy Pistons, and that ran its course. And then Rodman, who uh, Chuck Daly was really a father figure to him when Chuck Daly was out with Detroit. Rodman starts doing weird shit with his hair. Uh, His years in San Antonio, we got the weird stuff, the piercings, dating Madonna, etc., And then it all culminates with Dennis acting crazy in 1998, dating Carmen Electra, and then just going to Vegas on a mid-season vacation. He was just like, I need a mental break, so I'm going to go party in Vegas for what was supposed to be 48 hours, but turned into, let's say, a lot more than 48 hours. I mean, just outrageous. Not something that would happen today, Uh, nor would there be a video of Rodman openly walking around with a cracked Miller Lite can getting on and then getting onto a motorcycle with said Miller Lite can. Needless to say, Twitter wasn't around then. 
Uh, now, I know Rodman is a crazy character, and my God, does he have great stories, I'm sure. But as my dude Ryan Rosillo said, Rodman, even with all those crazy stories, he's really not that interesting. He really just became a cartoon character who was a special, unique basketball player. But every time he was interviewed, he really had nothing to say. He would just constantly reiterate, no one understands Dennis Rodman. But he would never explain Dennis Rodman to the public. I mean, what's the big deal? So he got a couple of tattoos, and he had a different hairdo style. I, I mean, all things considered, yeah, it's weird, but it's not like so outrageously weird that he's now interesting. So, yeah, that, that's Dennis Rodman. But, man, uh, one other thing of note, Carmen Electra. She's still throwing 94 miles per hour on the black, throwing major heat. I mean, she looked amazing last night. She still got it in a major, major way. Third thing was Phil Jackson, kind of a wild card. I mean, he was tripping acid in the 70s. He's got that weird Native American interest and stuff. Yet he had this incredible innate ability to connect with people, understand them and bring them together. I mean, this was evident with Dennis Rodman, especially Dennis. And that's what made him such a great coach more than anything else. I mean, he was a good ex and O's coach, but what made him a special, special coach was the way he was able to manage egos, whether it was his time with the Bulls or with the Lakers. Listen, I hate Phil Jackson. He was a disaster with the New York Knicks as an executive, but he comes off great in this series so far. And I kind of wish they went into his background and his history a little bit. But one of the interesting things that was, was part of Phil's history was he coached in a pro league in Puerto Rico where one owner shot, and yes, I mean shot with a gun, the, a referee in the leg over a call. And all the punishment was, was that that owner wasn't allowed to attend home games for the rest of the year. I mean, insane. What about attempted murder? Just a thought. I mean, yeah, this apparently happened in the late 70s, early 80s. Wild times, absolutely wild times. Number four, Isaiah Thomas. Man, Zeke comes off like such an asshole. The Pistons famously walked off the court in 1991 after beating the Bulls the prior two years, and not just beating them on the court, but beating the crap out of them physically. Thomas and the Pistons bridged the gap between Magic and Bird to Jordan. And the Pistons, all these years later, are always crying about the fact that they get zero respect historically. Well, guess what, Isaiah? You weren't Bird Celtics, you weren't as dominant as them, and you weren't Magic's Lakers, you weren't dominant as them, and guess what? You weren't nearly as dominant as the Jordan Bulls. You caught both of those teams, the Bird Celtics and the Magic Lakers, at the end of their runs, and you caught the Bulls when they were ascending. So you had this nice little, nice little sweet spot in the middle over there. And honestly, if Scottie Pippen doesn't get an insane migraine, Detroit loses to Chicago in 1990. Now you could say they should have beaten the Lakers in 88 with Isaiah Thomas and his ankle injury. Fine. So it evens out. So yeah, Isaiah, you had your moment in time. An impressive one. A five-year stretch where you made the conference finals each year and you won two titles. But you're a notch below Bird Celtics, you're a notch below Magic's Lakers, and you're definitely a notch below Jordan's Bulls. That's just your lot in NBA history. So deal with it and stop crying about it. And to Bill Lambeer, you can shut the hell up too. And note the Michael Jordan, the pure hatred he had towards Isaiah and those Pistons teams that runs so incredibly deep, even to this day. I mean, it's just so awesome to see that kind of sports hate, that that real deep hate that, that doesn't go away. When Jordan is shown the video of Isaiah Thomas walking off the court and then him explaining the logic and why he walked off the court, and Jordan says, I don't want to hear it. He's still an asshole. I mean... That was just wonderful. It was so true and so authentic. It was beautiful. And that's what makes this documentary great. The MJ interviews, they are so authentic, so real. He, let, he quote unquote, lets his hair down, which is funny because he's bald, but you know what I'm saying. It's just so great. You see the real unfiltered Jordan. And again, that's why Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan. He has more natural charisma than anyone. He's not afraid of what anyone thinks about him. The complete opposite of LeBron in every way. I said it before and I'll say it again. 
Michael Jordan is the only athlete, with the exception of maybe Muhammad Ali, who could carry your interest for a 10-part documentary series like this. A LeBron documentary would be an infomercial on all the great things LeBron does. Snooze fest. That's puke city. No one wants to watch that garbage. He would never be as unfiltered and as uh, as honest as Jordan is. He's too manufactured. Also, he doesn't have natural charisma. He's a noob. Likewise, there's a rumored documentary coming out about Kobe Bryant where Kobe filmed his last two years with the Lakers. And don't get me wrong. I'll watch it because I'm a sucker for this stuff. I'm a junkie for the NBA. I'll watch anything. But it won't be as good as this current uh, documentary because, sadly, there will be no first-person Kobe interviews anymore. My fear for the Kobe documentary is that it's going to be a cheap knockoff of this MJ documentary. And that would be a shame to Kobe's legacy. So if you're going to make the Kobe documentary, you better make it really, really good because what sets this apart is these Jordan interviews. He, he brings his A-game and is throwing 100 miles per hour in these interviews. As for Jordan, the basketball player, besides for being the coolest guy around, he's just a better basketball player than anyone else. His dominance isn't matched by anyone. He would put up stupid numbers today. Just check this out for a second, okay? Hear me out. From the 86-87 season to the 92-93 season, Jordan averaged, I repeat, averaged 33.2 points a game shooting uh, he had an effective field goal percentage of 53%. Basically, real field goal percentage, 52%. Add along six and a half rebounds a game, six assists a game, almost three steals a game, and a block a game. I mean, those numbers are ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And if he focused on the three ball, he would have been a good to very good three-point shooter. As I said in last week's episode, in the all-time draft, in any season where Jordan attempted three or more threes a game, he shot over 35% in those seasons. So yeah, Jordan would probably average today with no hand checking, no clogged lanes, and no brutal fouls like the Pistons were inflicting on him in the playoffs in the paint. He'd for sure average 40 a game, not even close. I mean, the guy was just, he was inhuman. He was like nothing we've ever seen before. And honestly, it's probably like nothing we're ever going to see Again, with that said, I'm going to talk a little NFL draft. I've got a first-time guest coming on, an exciting guest, uh, somebody who I've been circling for a while. We're going to bring him on in just a couple of moments. Okay, we're back. So I teased it before. Uh, I have a first-time guest on this week, uh, somebody who I've been circling for a while. We've been uh, in contact a bunch. He is exceedingly excited to be on. It's been a, it's been terrible scheduling with him. Partially, that's my fault. Partially, it was the way the news cycle broke. But I'm finally glad to have him on, uh, Mr. Jordan Teagman. Jordan, how are we doing? What's going on, Aaron? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. It's great to finally chat with you on the podcast. I know we've been going back and forth in terms of scheduling, but... We're finally here. We're good. So I wanted to get into the NFL draft. Uh, so before we get into the different things about the draft, a little bit of an intro. So you're a little bit of a draft junkie, and you may or may not have placed a couple of wagers on the NFL draft. So how did you do Thursday night uh, during the first round? All right, so that's an interesting question that you phrased it Thursday night because if we're judging just on Thursday night, I did indeed place wagers. I'm actually home in New Jersey. So it was through FanDuel, everything was kosher. Shout uh, out. I didn't do too well. I didn't do too well. I, uh, I actually took the Jets taking Jerry Judy at four, plus 450, which was an interesting bet. I uh, thought they would have done that. I know we were going to talk about the Jets a little bit later. Yeah, we're going to bring them up in uh, a second. Right, but... Having Judy on the board, tough to pass up on him. I did hit, however, on over six and a half offensive linemen being taken. I thought that that number was a little bit low. Did, did the calculations who I projected to go in the first round, and I ended up winning that one. And I actually rolled those winnings over Friday night, taking 
Xavier McKinney's of the Giants at 10 to 1. My favorite team. My favorite guy on the board as well. Hope it was really not, uh, I didn't use logic. I used my heart. And sometimes you win that way. So happy to report uh, a winner overall through the entire NFL draft. Love it. Absolutely love it. We're going to get into the Giants later, and they are my favorite team as well. We're going to specifically talk about that pick in a bit. But before we get into all that good stuff, um, what did you think of the telecast Thursday night? Uh, I, to be totally honest, I caught the tail end of the first round. Uh, I was recording episode 76. And for those of you who haven't listened yet, it was an awesome episode. The all-time NBA draft got rave reviews so far, but Definitely go download that. What did you think about the telecast and how it was formatted given the circumstances? Give me your thoughts. So to be honest with you, I think first and foremost, it was something that our country and sports fans as a whole really just needed. We needed some live sports. Um, I've been watching plenty of highlights, whether it be basketball, baseball, golf, all kinds of old highlights. And while they're awesome, I need a fix of live sports and the NFL draft was exactly what the doctor ordered there. Um, I thought it was extremely impressive by ESPN, how they had every single angle, every single coverage. There were one or two slip ups, but for the most part, it seemed as if it was a regular telecast. Um, The ratings clearly showed that it was something that we needed as it was miles, miles better than previous drafts. And which was um, to be expected. Yeah, I think I think um, Commissioner Goodell, for all of the things that he's known for, and, and he gets food all the time, I thought it was a little bit corny, but overall a good twist that he had fans on the screen booing him. Um, I think that while he's a little bit of – he's a little out there, um, that was a nice twist, and he really um, provided America with what they needed. Uh, that's my take on it. So – Let's get into Goodell for a second. So would you think after Goodell's performance, and I'm not even going to judge him on, on butchering the names, even though he probably should have gotten Tua Tagovailoa's name right, considering he was one of the premier uh, picks in this draft. Do you think Goodell is self-aware? Do you think he's not self-aware at all? I mean, the TikTok he did with Jerry Judy, I think that was really weird. I mean, What's your take on Goodell? I know everybody hates Goodell for a bunch of different yeah. things, but after this, you think he's a self-aware guy? I think he, in the beginning, he was kind of a fresh face, came off a little bit arrogant and understood uh, what came with being the NFL commissioner. Now, I think he knows where he stands, like you said. Uh, he knows that he's not particularly well-liked, but uh, I really thought that he did a great job this, this past draft embracing the fans and understanding what's going on in the world and how important this really was. And um, in terms of who he is as a commissioner, you got Dave Portnoy and Barstool hating on him. You got the Patriots hating on him. You got a bunch of owners not happy with him. I understand where all that comes from, but if you're judging him strictly off of this draft, I think he did a great job and certainly earned my respect as a football fan. Interesting. So um, before we go on to like what actually happened in the draft, last thing about the uh, the coverage. Did you think it was a little weird that they went overboard on on some of the tragedies that some of these guys have been through? I mean, obviously, you don't want to belittle people who have gone through hardships in their lives. But don't you think it was a little over exaggerated this year? Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think that they tried to add some flair to it and add some drama. Uh, I didn't really think it was necessary. Um, If your team drafted this guy, you're going to get to know them and you'll probably stumble upon that story at some point in time. But in terms of their first exposure to the world for a lot of people who are just casual NFL fans who don't know anything about these guys, to see them, to see their stats, and then see something tragic that happened in their home, I didn't think it was appropriate, to be honest. Could have done without that. But also, like we said, ESPN was in a tight spot and they really needed to try to produce more of a show than just a draft so i understand why they did it not the biggest fan but didn't really bother me one way or the other to be honest i i think you and i i mean well you more so than i because you watched more of it than i did we're in the camp of like the bill simmons Rosillo camp where you kind of wanted to hear more football people 
talking football as opposed to it, but whatever. I, I, I guess, you know, unfortunately, tragedy does ratings. So let's move on to what actually happened in the draft, uh, sure. especially in the first round. Usually there's more movement, right? Mm-hmm. La- lack of trades, except for the Patriots moving backwards, uh, which is a Bill Belichick special, uh, moving out of the first round. But uh, lack of trades, was it strictly due to Corona and the circumstances and people can't being, can't being around people? Or was it because guys really kind of went chalk and, and you can't really say somebody screwed up the first round? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I was also kind of taken away by that, especially – as we said, Aaron, we're Giants fans all day, all week leading up to the draft. We kept hearing Giants are trading down, Detroit's trading down. I was waiting for it to happen. And once I saw Okuda go off the board at three, which seemed to be a position of need for the Lions after they traded Darius Slay in the beginning of the offseason, um, I, was, I was kind of surprised. But then when you break it down, um, and I actually read an article about this, I think it was either Sunday or Monday or today, that a lot of the coaches had more time than ever to really digest these guys. And it wasn't just about the combine, but hearing testimonials from their coaches and college teammates. And they really felt comfortable with the guys they were taking and there wasn't necessarily a need for movement. So I guess you could say it's the Corona, but I also think that this draft class happens to be particularly deep and each team, it was easier for them to find a piece that really fit their team. The one thing that I found strange was obviously, and we'll get to Miami in a second, um, or I should say a little bit later, but Tua was the hot prospect that had the most volatility, I guess, going into the draft because of his injury history. What I never understood was why didn't, why wasn't there some type of smokescreen causing Miami to make a move to trade up to get him? Uh, that was a little weird to me, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, obviously we're both Giants fans, as we mentioned. So let's start there. Uh, the Giants draft. How do you feel about what the Giants did in the first round? So there's two questions here. Are we talking first round or we're talking the Giants whole picture? First round first, and then we'll talk about the whole picture because obviously the, um, you know, uh, Xavier McKinney in the second round, who was a first-round grade, seems to have been uh, considered one of the best picks of the draft. But let's just take first round. Did you want them to go tackle? Did you want them to go Simmons, the linebacker um, from Clemson? What did you want them to do? And what were their options, really? Right. They had plenty of options, and, and this is where I stood. The past two years, they've been struggling, obviously, and they took Barkley and they took Daniel Jones. So on offense, there clearly is a need for mobility and for Barkley to have room to run and and Jones to have room to throw. You're not going to be able to accomplish that without a good offensive line. And the Giants haven't had a good offensive line probably since Super Bowl 46. Being generous, they weren't even that great last year. That year, if you remember Eli getting smacked around in San Francisco in the NFC Championship game. I do. I was in the opinion that um, we needed to shore up that line and offensive tackle is a position that you don't necessarily need the most athletic guy, but you need someone that you can count on for a bunch of years. And based on the scouting report, I didn't really do much reading into the offensive lineman beforehand, but what people are saying about Andrew Thomas is that he's just a steady guy. He shows up when the big game, he shut down uh, Josh Allen when he played on Kentucky. He played big against LSU. He's able to play in the SEC, which is known for their pass rush. Um, I don't think that they made the wrong decision. Would I have liked Simmons? Of course I would have. I think he's going to be an incredible talent. And Arizona really got locked into him at, at eight, having to slide. And like we said, there weren't many trades. But as a Giants fan, I'm definitely pleased, at least for now, with the uh, acquisition of Andrew Thomas. So you think they – because there were four tackles who were rated sort of in, in their tier. Uh, so you think they took the right guy? I, I do. I think that maybe Worst is more talented. Maybe Jedrick Wills went to Alabama. He's got more pedigree. But uh, Thomas is – you know what you're going to get, and he's rock solid. And if you're taking an offensive lineman at number four, you got to know that he's going to be around for a while and be in this league for a long time. And it seems that they made the safest pick, which I'm happy with. 
I'm actually in agreement with you here, considering, you know, I don't think the Giants are in a position to move back only because I, I don't think general managers are really, really in a position to make trades like that. So if they were going to pick that, I, for a split second, wanted them to get a little creative. Um, and again, maybe if they had the, maybe if they had, uh, pro days and they were able to be around other GMs, this was more possible, uh, to look to maybe dangle Daniel Jones and then drafted Tua. But that was going to be a little, a little nuts. I don't think that was necessarily going to happen this year. So I, I can't complain with what they did. Um, even with a guy like Simmons being on the board, uh, I, I really can't complain. Uh, it seems to be that the home run that they hit was though in the second round with the uh, the safety uh, Xavier McKinney. I uh, picked thirty six. I don't. They were willing to trade up for him if I read correctly, but they they actually got him in in their slot. What do you, what can you tell us about Xavier McKinney? So I uh, I've been following the SEC all year. It's obviously the the most uh, I guess entertaining conference in all of college football. So I knew these teams quite well and watching Simmons, watching McKinney, excuse me, go from sideline to sideline, covering tight end, playing in the secondary deep, rushing the passer. He really could do it all. And he actually reminds me of a former giant and former Alabama player, Landon Collins, who, as we know, left a couple of years ago, just Landon's uh, shortcomings were in covering tight ends and, that's one of McKinney's strong suits. So really, it's an upgrade, and I was thrilled that he was on the board. I actually did read that they were comfortable trading down from 36, only if McKinney wasn't on the board, but because of the fact that he was, they ran and got him. So that was great. And another pick that I really liked was the fourth-round pick out of UCLA, Darnay Holmes, uh, Deion Sanders, prime time, as he's known uh, – was at the senior bowl in March before all this madness hit. And he actually said that his favorite player at the senior bowl was Darnay Holmes. So beyond the first two picks, which get the most, uh, I guess, most talked about, uh, Darnay Holmes might be a steal that Giants fans will hear from him hopefully very soon. So I'm well, very happy overall with, with Gettleman and, and where the, the where we are as a franchise right now. That's that's a lot of optimism considering that I've I've basically crapped all over Gettleman for years. I mean, not being able to uh, not offering the tender to Landon Collins and letting him walk for nothing. Uh, I I thought trading Odell was for four cents on the dollar. I just whatever. Right, but I but, think that that's an interesting point actually. Um, the Odell trade because if you've been listening to the rumors now, Cleveland is shopping him. And clearly there must have been something there in terms of team building that it's tough to win with wide receiver as your best and highest played player, especially when he has somewhat of an attitude problem. So personally, I think that Gettleman, while he didn't get the best return, he might have made the right move in terms of shipping Odell. I don't know. But that's very, very, very possible. Um, But and honestly, if we had like a strong head coach, I don't think Joe Judge is the right guy for that. Like I would. I would try and bring him back on the cheap because you can have like a Randy Moss type revival in New England, but who knows? But moving on to the moving on to the Jets. So the Jets definitely needed playmakers, but they needed a tackle. So they went tackle in round one. But as we mentioned that the that the wide receiver position this year was ultra, ultra deep. Um, but you seem to have had three guys in um Judy, uh, Riggs, and um, and CeeDee Lamb, who are the top of the top. But the Jets went tackle. They played it safe a little bit. And then they went wide receiver in the second round, the guy from Baylor. Do you think that the gap between the top three wide receivers and the next tier was big enough, or I should say small enough, that the Jets could have passed on – Judy or CeeDee Lamb to have gone with the tackle in round one? Or do you think that they should have gone with Judy or CeeDee Lamb and then tried to address tackle either in free agency or later on in the draft? Well, I think that that's an interesting question. And I think it's a lot more of a debate 
for the Jets than it is for the Giants, as we happen to have a couple weapons with Evan Ingram and Sterling Shepard, as well as Barkley. The Jets are really devoid of any sort of offensive talent beyond Le'Veon Bell. Um, but also, like I said, with the Giants and Daniel Jones and their investment, Sam Darnold is the Jets' biggest investment. And if he doesn't have room to pass, then it's all for nothing. So I think that while Judy, Ruggs, and Lamb are probably – Ruggs, I'm sorry. You, you corrected me there. Thank you. Not Riggs. Ruggs. All sorry. good. All good. Uh, you're, you're too much of a Barstool guy watching Riggs and his putting. <laughs> It's true, you're yeah, right. But, and his but, ridiculous um, haircut that was shaved. Yeah, he falls out. Crazy. Um, but but back to what I was saying is that I think that uh, similar to the Giants is that there was a need for the Jets to address the offensive line. And like there was a drop-off at wide receiver, there was a drop-off at tackle. And I actually think that the drop-off at tackle was bigger than the drop-off at wide receiver. Like the Jets ended up with Denzel Mims and – uh, I think that also was a right move for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it remains to be seen how much of how good Judy, Ruggs, and Lamb will really be. Were there any, or I should say, are there any tackles on the free agent market that were, you know, given the Jets' cap structure, I don't know what their cap number is right now, that they could have gone for yeah, or that they could still either. go for? Right. Okay, so yeah, no, so address the offensive line and free agency as well. So um, I think, listen, both New York teams really did a good job of uh, shoring up their team and getting more of a complete roster. And uh, if the season does indeed start, I'm excited to see what we have. That's shocking considering the uh, the Jets are famous for not doing the draft well at all. As Mel Kuyper once said in the mid-90s, it's clear to me that the Jets have no idea what the draft is all about. But who knows? Maybe this year it um, maybe this year is different. It's uh, in general, it doesn't seem like there were a lot of you know surprises. I mean, maybe Ruggs as being the first wide receiver off the board, but other than that, it wasn't that like it wasn't a crazy surprise. So, who uh, was your big winner in the draft, and who was your big loser in the draft? If you had to pick one, all right. So winner, um, I'll actually give you two. Quickly, I think the Bengals are automatically the winner because Joe Burrow is going to be a transcendent player. And I don't want to say Tom Brady like they did on the draft coverage, but he's going to be really, really good. And anytime you can lock up a quarterback like that, you're a winner. Plus the fact that they got T. Higgins, uh, I would say Cincinnati. But if we really want to go into it, I would say the Cowboys, unfortunately, for us as Giants fans. but to have Lamb fall into your lap where they picked, I think it was 17. Uh, he's a hell of a player. 17 or 18, yeah. Yeah, so pairing him with Amari Cooper is uh, pretty crazy. It's going to be tough to cover them, uh, especially with Zeke. So Dak, with all the contract issues, got pretty lucky with a gift. They also got Trayvon Diggs, brother of Stefan. Um, in the second round, who was a projected late first round, early second round talent. So uh, I would say Dallas did a really good job. Jerry Jones drafting from his yacht by himself uh, did a surprisingly good job. Yeah, I mean, Jerry, Jerry Jones had, uh, had a great flex, only to be outdone, I should say, on the same level flex as the uh, Cliff Kingsbury uh, – House yeah, picture. That was, a that, was, that, was, that was big time flex also. But uh, Jerry Jones yeah. on a yacht that was nicer than basically everybody's house in America. That was big time flex. So the For thing sure. with Dallas, you, you mentioned Dallas. Dallas is interesting because it's a lot of flash, right? And we've seen this before when you have a lot of flashy, shiny new toys. But, you know, they lost a couple of guys on the offensive line this year. Uh, I think Zach Martin retired. Uh, a bunch of guys, you know, left. Frederick. Uh, yeah, Travis Frederick, no longer there. I mean, does this blow up in smoke with them? I mean, I know when C.D. Lamb fell at that spot, like you had to take him. So it's not like they missed – they took him over somebody else. But I don't know. Dallas, yeah, I'm nervous about the guys on the outside. But if you if you can't block and, – and I – I don't love Dak Prescott. I, I don't love Dallas still. 
Right. I mean, I, I, I'll agree with you, but I think that Lamb falling to them at that spot is extreme value. Well, because then they can get rid of if he because if he's that great, then they can immediately cut Amari Cooper uh, and save money off his cap hit, and then uh, and then go on from there. But anyway, who's your second winner? So uh, the Cowboys were my second winner. My first winner was the Bengals. Oh, it was the Bengals. Sorry. Uh, what you have you have another winner on hand? Because then I'll give you mine. I would say. I wouldn't necessarily call them a winner, but I would say that Denver did a really nice job getting Jerry Judy at 15. Uh, like I said, I think he's the best, probably the best offensive talent on the board overall. Um, and I know John Elway likes to swing it with his team and, and Drew Locke, a young QB. They actually got a second wide receiver later on in the draft, which uh, I actually, his name slipping my mind, but. Um, Judy at 15 is going to be a pick that we'll remember for years, in my opinion. Okay, well, you didn't pick my my team. My team is Miami. And right, I know it's right. a little risky because – but Tua, if he had not gotten injured, was going to be the number one pick. You know, it, it's going to be risky, but for a team that hasn't had a quarterback since Dan Marino, right? I mean, besides for – Everybody's favorite Jay Cutler, smoking Jay, but divorce, divorce, now. Recently divorced uh, Jay Cutler. I mean, as unfortunately, our guy uh, Big Cat tweeted, "Love doesn't exist," and he's very sad. But to get to it without having to trade up and give up any of those three first round picks, and yeah, if he's not healthy and if he's brittle, it's not going to work. But the upside is so there that I think they automatically had to be the winner of the draft because they got a guy who's potentially the best player in the draft and they didn't have to move up to get him at a premium, premium position. So they got to be my winner. And as I mentioned before, it was – yeah, I I actually don't be – I actually don't. I think they – I mean, all the teams you mentioned before, I mean, the Bengals. But to me, it was, like, clear that Miami was the clear-cut winner because there were no smoke screens, as I mentioned before, for them to have to get Tua. And to me, it was just weird. So uh, who's your your loser of the draft? Um, I think that this is going to be a pretty popular decision in terms of who the loser of the draft is. Uh, I'll give you two like I gave you two winners. But number – first and foremost, the Green Bay Packers, man. I mean – that's just blatant disrespect to Aaron Rodgers. I, I know he's 36, and as a Giants fan, I've seen what it's like when you don't draft the replacement on time. We had, a, uh, as much as I love Eli, we had maybe two or three extra years because we didn't get the guy. But Aaron Rodgers is, I think, at least in the middle towards the end of his prime and in the historic wide receiver class. Not only do you not get him a wide receiver, but you get a quarterback. That's really just a slap in the face, and they didn't even get a wide receiver in the later round. So Green Bay, I'd love to have a chat with their GM and figure out what he was doing there because I don't know. Before you give your second pick, the Packers were my pick as well, and we'll talk about – so hold that thought. We'll talk about Aaron Rodgers and the Rodgers situation in a second. Who's your second loser? So I would say – I wouldn't say necessarily a loser, but the Los Angeles Chargers uh, – I wasn't a big Herbert guy to begin with pre-draft. And I think Cam Newton is not getting enough love out there. He's out there on the free agent market. So Chargers have weapons all over the field. They could have went with a high-quality weapon at six, whether it be offense or defense, signed Cam. And who's to say that they can't challenge Kansas City and they have to be west with that team? Um, but then to take a step back and take Herbert at six, didn't like to pick too much. They did get Kenneth Murray at 19, uh, 23, I think, who I liked a lot. Um, so that kind of made up for it. But the Herbert pick it doesn't sit well with me. I'm not a Herbert guy. Uh, but I don't think drafting Herbert necessarily precludes them from signing Cam on like a one- to two-year deal. Um, I mean, the Chargers need to fill seats, and Cam is a former MVP. Uh, but right. yeah, I mean, my, my biggest loser was the Packers as well. So let's talk about the Aaron Rodgers situation, right? Because he's a notoriously prickly guy. 
He's um, hasn't had a great relationship with the front office for years now. Uh, they were one win away from the Super Bowl, um, and they gave him no help. And he's 36. So, how salty on a scale of one to ten do you think that he's going to be right now? Um, if there's any number above ten, Aaron, I, I think that, <laughs> and rightfully, right, rightfully so, to be honest, because. Um, for all the reasons we mentioned, and he was brought them to the NFC Championship game last year. They did get blown out, but to get that far and then to just rebuild is uh, a definitely questionable decision, in, in my opinion. At this point, does he... Before we go into that, actually, because Jordan Love, who was like a sexy pick, um, you know, a, a big combine guy, right? Big arm, all this kind of stuff. As the quarterbacks are falling, you know, late into the first round, don't you think they could have waited on Love in the second round or tried to trade up in the second round if they really loved him and to have then maximized their first round pick? It was just a little baffling to me. Right, yeah, and and not only did they take him in the first, they actually traded up for him, which was pretty uh, pretty stunning. Um, I just don't get it. I Not to say that Jordan Love won't be a good player. He very well may be. But the timing and, and the place in the draft, I'm not I'm not following their logic there. It was weird. And especially with the, um, as uh, to quote my guy, again, Ryan Rosillo, talking about the bust rate of uh, quarterbacks, first-round quarterbacks being 50%. I don't know. It, it was just weird. I mean, does it get to a point – where Rodgers is so miffed that he demands a trade. I mean, listen, we're we're you're you you have your own podcast. We're in the entertainment business here. Wouldn't it be great if Belichick got on the phone and called Green Bay and said, "Listen, I'll throw you that farm for Rodgers. Rodgers takes over Brady, wins another Super Bowl with Belichick, and then you have all sorts of legacy questions." I think that that's a fascinating storyline, but do I see it happening? Probably not. Um, I think he's going to find a way to stick it out in Green Bay. But if you even just thought about that scenario in New England for a second, I think that that'd be uh, super cool and interesting. No, that would be not be super cool. That would be super awful. And I would like nothing. Actually, there's one scenario I would like least um, is that they go two and 14 this year and then take Trevor Lawrence. That would be worse. Um, Okay. But yeah, so yeah, no, I, I, I just think Rodgers, with as kind of a jerk that he is, this is going to be super interesting this year, and I, I can see them their season going completely off the rails. Uh, yeah, before we get we're into, talking uh, betting right now. We're talking betting right now, Aaron. Uh, the season win total for the Packers right now is nine. And to all you listening out there, I would go heavy on the under. I think it's going to be a bloodbath in Green Bay. There you go. So before we um we transition on to, I know you had a couple of takes on the uh, MJ documentary. Last thing on the um, on the draft, which first round pick are you just flat out out on? I mean, I think we're in agreement. It's Justin Herbert, right? I would say Herbert, um, but to make it interesting and give give us a, a talking point here, I think that CJ Henderson at nine to Jacksonville kind of came out of nowhere. I, I hadn't been hearing his name up in the top ten. Uh, at any time, and Jacksonville's known for their questionable picks. Um, I don't know much about him, kind of one way or the other, but to say surprise and I'm out on him is where I'm standing right now, unless proven otherwise. Yeah, for me, it's Herbert. I just don't see it. I know he was maybe going to come out last year. The Giants were looking into him. Uh, I didn't want it then, and uh, I just, I'm out. I'm out on Justin Herbert. I hear you. I'm in the same boat. So, you mentioned to me that uh, to move on to the uh, the Jordan documentary before we let you go. Um, and thanks again for doing this. We finally uh, finally got it going. Um, you you said you had some takes. So before I, I before I want to preface that with a question, you were born in 1996, right? Correct. So you Correct. never really watched Jordan play in his prime ever. Like you you just didn't. You're too young. Never. So. What has this experience been like to you in terms of like what you're learning about Jordan, 
Um, you know, I, I'm sure you've probably watched old clips, but what kind of stuff are you learning? And especially with this whole greatest of all time debate, which to me is so incredibly silly because it's one sided and there's a clear right answer and there's a clear wrong answer. And uh, newsflash, anybody who thinks LeBron James is the greatest of all time, that's the clear wrong answer. So what have you learned throughout all this? All right. So like you said, I was born in 96. My extent of my Jordan knowledge is that I have a wings poster above my bed that came from my dad's college dorm. And I've never, like, I, the only time I've ever seen Jordan play live, I was actually at his last game in the garden as a seven-year-old kid when he was wearing a Wizards jersey. Even then, I knew it didn't seem right. Um, I've obviously seen the highlights. I saw the shot over Elo, the shot over Byron Russell, the 63 against Boston in the garden. But you never really knew. I mean, at least you did, but I never really knew what he did on a night-to-night basis in terms of they needed 45, he got you 51. They needed you to go for 10 assists, he went for 12. They were talking last night about even in his preparation, bench press, his trainer told him to get six, he gave the 12. He just went above and beyond. And in terms of mentality, the only person that I guess is comparable, uh, may he rest in peace, is Kobe. But uh, the, the pure dominance of, of MJ and what I've really learned from this doc is just the way he talks and the way he really just went about everything. He just, I, I, for less of a better word, he, he's just a psycho in terms of how driven he is to win. And um, I'm the LeBron. I grew up in the LeBron era, but playing eight seasons in the '90s and making the finals six times, winning six times, it's it's tough to argue that anyone's better than this guy. I'm very impressed by your uh, by your opinion. Uh, I'm I'm very impressed. I, I'm I'm a little surprised, and and it's not because I didn't expect you to be knowledgeable, but just because you know of of who you grew up seeing. But the fact that you're able to portray that so eloquently, I, I mean, a round of applause because that's the right answer. That's the right answer. And listen, number four. I'm sure I'm going to have friends of mine listening to this podcast and they're going to rip on me for not saying LeBron is amazing and what he is. LeBron James may very well, this might take away from the take that I just gave you, but LeBron James might very well be the most talented player to ever hold a basketball. But in terms of winning, I have one game, 48 minutes to win a championship. There's no way I'm taking LeBron over Michael Jordan. That's just not going to happen. That That's beautiful. That's beautifully said. And, I, I mentioned it before, but it it um, bears repeating is that, uh, you know, Jordan was just also, besides for just the basketball aspect, he was just the coolest guy in the room, right? He's been the coolest guy in the oh, room right. since 1985. The way he walked, the way he talked, everything. And, you know, that's that's part of it. He had an aura that no one else has. Like, like let me ask you a question. Would you watch, and, and maybe you're not the right example because you're a sports junkie like me and I'll, I'll consume everything, but... Would you want to watch a 10-part documentary about LeBron James? Uh, tough for me to answer that, like you said, because I'm a sports junkie and I'd probably watch anything. But I don't think that kids these days have the connection to LeBron that kids and even adults in your days had with Michael. Michael, everywhere he walked, they call – I think his nickname was Black Jesus. Or Am I wrong? Is that Earl Monroe well, or is that Michael? Uh, yeah. Well, it, it kind of um... – it's gotten passed around a little bit before. Yeah, there's the famous yeah, so Reggie Miller story. Like he's, he's just uh, – he, everything he did, whether in the Olympics in Barcelona, everyone was hounding him. The stories about him on the golf course taking down 20 beers and then putting up 50 in the game that night. Uh, it doesn't even seem real, the types of things that he did. But um, just his following and the fact that in 2020 – 22 years after his last championship and when he was really uh, relevant as a basketball player, the whole world is captivated by his story and the things that he did. It's just, it, it speaks to him. I don't know if LeBron would be able to do the same power that Michael did. Think about it this way also. And I will end on this. Whose sneakers still sell the most? Yeah, I mean. And it's not even close. With the Jordan ones, and 
and Zion Williamson, who was barely even born. I don't even know if he was born when Michael was around. He signed with Jordan Brand because he wants to be like Jordan, right? So that right there is a great example. There you go. Jordan, uh, I know I've taken a little bit of your uh, of your time tonight. We finally got it done. How do you think you did on your debut? Um, I'd like to think I did a good job. You know, I, I gave the people what they want to hear, which is just my genuine opinion. And I always like talking sports and I can go on. And I have a lot of respect for you, Aaron, uh, knowing your brother oh, for a you. bunch of years and, and being a fan of the show and knowing how much you guys like to talk about sports. Uh, I'm happy to come on again whenever you have me talk any sort of sports because this is really a great escape for me, especially uh, in times like these. It's been a pleasure. Amen, brother. Amen. Well, you have earned the uh, the moniker of recurring guest to quote our guys over a part of my take. We're going to have to run this back again. This was wonderful. We finally got it done. Mr. Jordan Teekman, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Speak to you my soon. My pleasure, Aaron. All the best. Have a good one. Thanks again to uh, first-time guest Jordan Teegman. Uh Really great stuff. Uh, brought the noise. Uh, I'm very thrilled to hopefully have him back sometime soon. That's episode 77 for the love of the game. Take us out X to the Z. Now let me tell you who I ain't. Hey. You can't run no games. Uh, I'm gangsta, baby. Ain't nothing James. Come on. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube